We're in Genesis 18 and 19. We're looking at this in sort of three parts because it really foreshadows this time with Christ just before he goes to the cross. So what we've seen is that God has appeared to Abraham in the appearance of three men, one in particular being referred to as Yahweh. Of course, this is a reference and pointing to when Christ will take on human flesh and dwell among us as a human uh, for a whole life um, when he goes to, before he goes to the cross. We also see him have a meal with these men. So he dines with God. And in the midst of dining with God, the promise of an offspring is confirmed with a deadline, with a time. In a year's time, you will have an offspring. And then what follows on, we see uh, in this story, Abram goes to intercede for the place of judgment or the, the nation of Sodom that's going to be judged as Christ will see intercedes for us and for himself. So let's read uh, Genesis 18, 16 to 33, and then we'll look at Jesus and his time, and then we'll unpack this story. Genesis 16, uh, 18, verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to, the, to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep, his way, keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will, then, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it that from you... Far be it that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose, the, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. 
Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once, suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we behold in your word this glorious story, how you would allow your creation to approach you with such boldness, who would allow your creation to inquire of you and appeal to you according to your character and attributes. Lord, you have lavished grace upon us in saving us in Christ Jesus and Now you call us to intercede for the lost and the broken, for the wicked and the evil. As people once interceded for us when we're in the same state. You call us to stand between, to be a light in dark places, to be a city on a hill that everyone can see. Lord, as Christ interceded on our behalf to the point of giving his own life, pouring out his blood and his body being broken on a cross and going to the grave for us, as he interceded for us before that in prayer, praying for us to see his glory, to abide in him, to be one, to love as you love him and he loves you. Lord, would we imitate him as Paul imitated him, Will we grab hold of the tangible reality of hell that surrounds us today, that wrath is being stored up for the day of righteous judgment? And Lord, we, we have been called to plead, to plead with them, to be reconciled to you, to point them to the only means of salvation, no other name in which they can be saved but in Jesus. Lord, I pray that through this word that we may have a true reality of the spiritual darkness that surrounds us, the true reality of our own identity as a son and daughter who can come to their father with humble boldness. Pray that this would by the power of your Holy Spirit, go forth into us and change our prayer life. Make us bold, make us weaker so that we depend more on you and more on prayer. And Lord, would we see great revival take place, great affection burst out of the church as the church gathers to pray, whether individually or together in person as we see the early church demonstrated for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we did last week, we looked at Jesus 
having a meal with his disciples. And as he had his meal, he got up and washed the disciples' feet. He took the place of a servant as he is the fulfillment of Abraham. He is the greater Abraham. And Abraham demonstrated the servanthood and the uh, humility as he served God and the angels in human flesh, appearing to him as a man. But all the more, Jesus demonstrates it far greater as the God who was before all things, who is the Holy One, who took on human flesh and walked in the weakness of human flesh. And we know from Mark and John that after the meal, they sung a hymn together and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And John gives us an extensive picture of the prayers Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. Of course, we have the famous prayer of him sweating blood in great anxiety about the cup of wrath that he was about to consume. But there was more prayer. He prayed for the apostles. He prayed for you and me. And in John 17, I'm only going to read a couple of verses, verse 24 and 20 to 26, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. After this covenant meal, the promise of a new covenant where they will be set free from sin, the slavery to sin. They will be uh, able to draw near to God without the sacrifices of animals. The temple curtain will be torn before Christ enters the cross, before he goes to the place of his crucifixion, before the cup of wrath is drunk. He intercedes on behalf of his people. To intercede is a deeply, uh, deeply hard prayer to pray. It's a battle in prayer. It's, it's, over, it's thinking about a particular party and praying for them in a way that will plead their case before someone whom they are unworthy of. We see clearly in Abraham's story, as we'll unpack this battle that he's going through. What about 50? What about 45? And he breaks it down. It is not an easy prayer to be praying. We don't intercede lightly. Jesus, by the end of his high priestly prayer, by the time he comes to pray about his own anxiety towards the cross, is sweating blood. He's sweating in such a way that he's under such great pain, such great anxiety of the anticipation of what is to come. He intercedes for his, his apostles. He prays that the world will not overcome them, that not one of them will fall away. He prays that we, his people, who will hear the word through the apostles, will see his glory. Jesus prayed that we would see his glory. Our Savior prayed that we, would, that, he would, that we would see His glory. He prayed that we would have the same love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. These are the prayers of your Savior who interceded on your behalf. He calls His disciples to intercede for Him as He goes to pray about the wrath that is going to come. 
Of course, his disciples fall, fall asleep multiple times and he prays for his own case. Let your will be done. Let your will be done. Intercession is prayer that takes work. Intercession is not the prayer that we are praying without ceasing or consistently. It's the times where Jesus heads off to the desolate place or as he tells his disciples, go into the closet, shut the door and pray. It is hard work. But prayer and intercession must be one of the most underrated mysteries in the scriptures. It must be one of the un- most underrated mysteries when we think of it, think of what is taking place when we intercede or when we pray. Well, what, is, what is happening in that moment is that the physical, created, finite being, humans, are making requests and accessing the uncreated, infinite, holy being. Is that not profound? Has prayer become such a mundane routine in our life that we rattle off a grace before our meal or speak some words in our head? That we've forgotten how profound a mystery it is that we can speak and have access to a holy God. And not only have speak and have access to, but make requests of. We can ask Him for things. He's invited us, as we will see when we look at Abraham, He has invited you and me to ask Him for things. As we saw in Luke 12 before. Jesus demonstrated that while He was in human flesh, while He had the same weaknesses we had, although being fully God, He still felt tired. He still was worn out. He still needed rest. He demonstrated the practice of going to a desolate place away from the crowds. He saw it as oxygen for his soul, as oxygen is for the body. Prayer was a necessary part of staying spiritually healthy. He needed it as much as we need water. He needed it as much as he needed as we need food to sustain us. Of course, Paul imitated Christ in his daily need or regular need of prayer as he states that he prayed without ceasing. Of course, this is the prayer of constant communication with God. Or when he speaks of intercession, every letter that he writes, but particularly when we think of Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all make it... For you, all making my prayer with joy. As he remembered his, his, as he remembered his brothers and sisters, as he remembered the church, as they came to mind, he interceded for them. He longed to see them grow up in their faith. He longed to see them sanctified. So what do we struggle with today? The sin of prayerlessness. The sin of Prayerlessness plagues our entertained and comfortable minds. Our daily reality says to us we don't need to pray. Our daily reality reminds us of how secure we are in our own strength. None of us today are going to go hungry. None of us today are going to go without shelter. Our daily reality says to us that everything's pretty okay. 
Our daily reality says to us that I have enough strength to get by on my own. But Jesus knew the hearts of men. And because Jesus could look across the crowds and he would see that they were harassed and helpless without a shepherd, he knew the need in which was to come. He knew the need that these people were dead without being spiritually awakened. When Jesus walked into Jerusalem, he didn't see a beautiful city. He saw a city ready for destruction and he wept over it. Jesus saw the world through spiritual eyes and not through physical eyes. When he looked at the Pharisees, he didn't see the Pharisees who were righteous but self-righteous. The people who were meant to be the religious elites were actually failing dismally spiritually. The reality that Jesus saw was a desperate reality for spiritual new birth that could only come through the gift of God. What reality do we see today in Australia? What reality do we see as we look around? Or maybe a better question to ask is, what reality does your prayer life reveal you believe? If our prayer life is lacking, it means we are dependent on our strength. It's a boast against God to say, God, I have this, okay? Back off. Prayerlessness is saying, God, I don't need your help. Evangelism and discipleship will reveal just how much we need his help. Our problem today is not that we are weak. It's because we don't know how weak we are. We don't know the reality of our weakness. Because we can do a lot to sustain ourselves. Well, just like Christ, Abraham had his covenant meal. The promise was given to him for his son. And God takes him off to look down upon a city that wrath is about to be poured out. And as Jesus intercedes for those who would be ready for wrath and intercedes for himself because he is the only one worthy to intercede for him, on the one who will actually wear the wrath, Abraham stands before God and intercedes for those who are about to face the judgment of God. Let's unpack this and think about what Abraham saw which compelled him to pray. Firstly, we see God's invitation for prayer in 16 to 19. So we're in Genesis 18, 16 to 19. It said, The men set out, so they've left their meal, they've left the tent of Abraham, and they've walked off down to, so- to Sodom. Abraham Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. After a promise of grace, the long-awaited son will arrive in a year. The offspring who will become a nation, the offspring who will, who will be a foreshadow of the one who will crush the serpent's head. But God has got other business to deal with. 
And with grace always comes truth. Jesus came to bring grace and truth when He walked upon the earth. And here we see the grace has been given. There is a promise for humanity that will prolong the human race. But the truth of the matter is that humanity is wicked. And there's a particular place that's living in great wickedness. We know it as Sodom and Gomorrah. We see the men walk off and two of them head down towards Sodom to go and see. It says later that God will see, God will go and find out whether this outcry or what this outcry is all about. But Yahweh, the Lord, stays with Abraham. And in the midst of God's sovereign plan to pour out wrath, He has a plan to call His righteous people, His children, He calls them and invites him, Abraham, to intercede. What we are seeing is how God's sovereignty can work with with prayer. God is always looking for us, his people, to intercede. And he gets to a point in the Israelite history where in Isaiah, he looks out for a person to intercede and there is no one. It says the Lord saw and it displeased him. And there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. God was always looking to his people to intercede for those those who lived in wickedness. The reason Israel was to be set apart was to set an example for the rest of the nations, to draw near to him, to see that they were unholy, but God was holy. And of course, Israel just became like the other nations to a point where God says, there is no one. There is no one worthy. So out of my own strength, out of my own might, out of my own righteousness, I will uphold, I will intercede. So Jesus steps in. But here, he still has a faithful servant. Of course, not as sufficient as Jesus. He could not bear the wrath and punishment that was ready for Sodom. But he could intercede. He could stand before Sodom and plead their case. And call upon the attributes and the characteristics of God. That God would act in the way that is right in him. We see that God's judgment is just. Abraham calls upon the justice of God, the judgment of God, and God is just in that he sees every depraved act of Sodom. He's grieved over the pain, the pain that this nation has caused and causing at the moment, and he's come to destroy it. Yet his final move is to include his people, or at this stage, his person, Abraham, to inquire of him and to make requests on behalf of the city. God plans our prayers just as surely as he plans the events that he performs in the answer of our prayers. That is a profound mystery, that the sovereign God will orchestrate plans and plan that his people will pray in order for those plans to work out. If we need some examples, let's look at Luke twenty-two thirty-two. Where Jesus says to Peter, uh, he says to Peter that you will deny him, 
He will deny you, but he says, I have prayed for you that you will not, de- that, you, that after you deny me, you will return and strengthen the brothers. So what we have here is that God has planned that Peter will deny him, but he's also planned that Jesus will pray, and in his prayer, Peter will be reinstated. Another one is Job 42, 8 and 9. We've seen his friends just blaspheme God as they uh, mix up theology and they have part truths but not full truths. And at the end in 42, 8 and 9, just going to paraphrase a couple of verses that says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And my servant Job shall pray for you, For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. And the Lord accepted accepted Job's prayer. In God's sovereign plan and sovereign will as he orchestrates the world is that he is going to place Christians in particular places or place his people in particular places to pray for people and he will answer those prayers in his sovereign order of the world. The other option is God is not sovereign, therefore your prayers are meaningless. Because if God is not sovereign, there is no point praying to Him. If God cannot change the heart of man or sway the hearts of king or turn someone's heart to Him, don't ask for someone's salvation because He can't give it if that's what you believe. If God is sovereign, then we can pray to Him knowing that He has planned for us to pray and He will bring about His plan by answering our prayers. Our prayers are not meaningless because God is in control of all things. So when we come and present our requests to God, we are being obedient as He's called and invited us to pray. He's showing us kindness in that we get to come near to Him and draw near to Him and make requests and get to know Him better. But the truth is, it's through our prayers that He brings about His plan. It's through the prayers of His people that God will bring about His sovereign plan. He has planned your prayers in order to bring about His purposes. We see it so clearly here. He invites Abraham to pray. He invites his people to pray. And the reason he invites him to pray is this verse in verse 19. He says, For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. The people of God are to uphold the righteousness of God and the justice of God. And in the midst of this invitation, he's saying, as you pray, pray that God's righteousness will be seen. Pray that it will be played out in life. Pray that through the destruction of Sodom or the way Israel acts or the way his children will act, that the righteousness and justice of God will go forth and his attributes will be seen in the world. God's plan For our praying is that we will pray according to his character and his nature. What I think is beautiful about these Old Testament stories is there's a curtain being pulled back. There's a curtain that's being pulled back there from the physical to the spiritual. When we pray, we are praying from physical, our physical nature, our physical reality to the dimension of the spiritual reality where God is seated where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. And in the Old Testament, 
We see these two worlds blend where God stands before Abraham as a man. Where God stands there and it's a conversation going back and forth. The invitation is direct to Abraham to pray. Should I tell you what I'm about to do to Sodom? Should I, should I tell you what is about to happen? It's a conversation that's taking place. Or we see Abraham's grandson later on wrestle physically with God. This image of Jacob wrestling with God, asking to be blessed. These moments are the physical reality of what our prayers are doing. Now, we don't have such a tangible experience. The Word comes to us through the written Scriptures and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, but the same thing is still happening. We must wrestle with God like Jacob did. We must talk to God like Abraham did. And we have these examples where that curtain's been pulled back and the physical and the spiritual are interacting, which is what is happening for us just on a separate level. We aren't seeing God in the way that Abraham saw God. We aren't wrestling with God in the way Jacob wrestled with God. But the emphasis still matters. The work that Abraham put in in his prayer, the way he appeals to God's character and comes in humble boldness, as we will see, is how we should approach God. The way we should sit in silence and wait for a response that may come through the Holy Spirit or through His Word as God draws out the word that is dwelling within us to remind us or give us an answer. Or the way Jacob wrestles for a blessing from God all night, we could, our prayer life is hard work. It's sweat and blood that goes into interceding for someone or to wrestling with God over a particular issue of suffering or salvation. The, the Old Testament peels back that curtain and we get to see what is going on spiritually for us that they had in the physical world? So the first thing we see in Abraham is that God has invited, God has invited His people to uphold His righteous and justice through interceding for the wicked and for the broken in this world. It is through us praying that God will be righteous in the way He deals. It's through us praying for God's justice to be upheld that God will bring about that, His purpose. Every great revival throughout history has been planned by God and has happened through churches gathering together and praying. Every single one is documented by a gathering of believers praying that God's will will be done, praying that He will pour forth His Spirit. And that was his sovereign plan. The next thing we see in verses 20 and 21 is this tangible reality of hell. It says, The Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. These verses are a great benefit to us. 
And the reason we need to spend time in the Old Testament and dive into the passages like Joshua destroying nation after nation or judges where wickedness prevails or the prophets where wickedness is seen as an absolute uh, blaspheme and adultery against God. The reason we need to spend time in that place is because the reality of man's depravity has somehow become numb to us. Our comfort and security in Australia means that we don't realize or we have forgotten that we are at spiritual war. And when you don't realize that you're in spiritual war, you aren't going to pray because you think that you can do the war on your own or you think that you can live this life on your own. The reality of hell and God's wrath seems to be a distant reality to us. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, said this, said two things. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what has been done, in what he is now doing, or what he intends to do. And he says, the reality is, Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. And he speaks about how God has already bent his bow from Psalm 7. That God is ready to let go of it at any moment. And it's only because God's hand of grace is sustaining that rotten piece of wood that they are still here today. The reality of hell is real. And we don't preach about it enough. And we don't realize it enough. Our prayer life exposes us to realize that we are secure. And what God has done here to Abraham is he reveals to him that there is a great outcry that is constantly being sent up to him against Sodom. An outcry of oppression, an outcry of pain, an outcry of suffering. This word outcry is repeated in the scriptures over and over again about the oppressed and brutalized. It's used... For the widow and the orphan in Exodus 22, 23. The cry of the oppression of the servant in Deuteronomy 24. The cries of the Israelites in Egypt in Exodus 2. Jeremiah uses it eight, nine, ten times in and talking about the terror and the screams of the individual or the city that is attacked. The phrase outcry is being sent up to God at every moment of every day. We must understand that God hears the cries of humanity. He hears the cries of the babies that are suffering abuse. He hears the cries of the old man beaten on the street. He hears the cries of the teenage girl that is compromised. He hears the cries of the abandoned wife. He hears the, cry, he hears the bitter moans of man stripped of his dignity and humiliated by the system. The cries of painful silence go up all at once in a deafening roar. And God hears them all. Even the whimpers and the silent screams. We need the reality of the outcry that is going up to God. Because we live in genuinely the most comfortable country in the world. It is hard to become homeless in our country. The government will help us in our country. That is unheard of in a great many nations. 
It's hard to go without in our country because our, our government is trying to do their best to help, whether that is right or wrong. Christians, we must recognize and proclaim and pray and intercede for justice to come. God is hearing, is listening. He has come and experienced in the person of Jesus and he is coming again. Jesus experienced the outcries himself. He experienced the oppression and the brutalization of of mankind. One of the parts of the crucifixion which gets me the most every time I read it, and I read it the other day, is not the cross. It's not the nails. It's when he's being robed in purple and getting put a crown of thorns on his head. And they're punching him in the face and spitting on him and mocking him. The creator of the heavens, the creator of the seas and all that is in them, submits to spitting and mocking and being punched. Christ experienced our abuse. The outcry has come to God in such a way that he sends his own son to die. Yet we ourselves once again have fallen into the place of humanity where we flatter ourselves that the time is far off, that we're not going to face that reality. And of course, we personally won't. Christ has interceded and brought us out of that darkness, but those around us will. As Sodom is going to be destroyed, so our nation will be destroyed. Australia will not stand forever. It will perish. Is that a reality to you? Is that something that you think about? Would we bear with the other saints of old and take on the tangible reality of hell and sit with Spurgeon that says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertion. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. This was the heart of the Puritans that went before us. And they didn't have everything right, but they saw a great need in their city. A great need in their nation to be praying for it. Australia needs the church to stand up in prayer. To be like Abraham who says, I will stand between God and man. I will plead their case. I will say, uphold your justice and righteousness. I want to tell my children and my ancestors about it. I want this nation to know that God's wrath is just. And then he dives into his prayer after the tangible reality of God's wrath and hell is laid upon him as the outcries, he feels the weight of the outcries that have come to God. He comes to a desperate concern. And in verse 22 to 33, we see that famous prayer of Abraham as he intercedes for the unrighteous, knowing that they aren't worthy. And he prays. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, 
If I find that Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. God's given Abraham an invitation. He's given him the reality of hell, the reality of wrath and justice coming. Now he allows Abraham to draw near. Just think of that for a moment. God has allowed you to draw near. You are nothing. You are dirt. And he allows you to draw near. And he draws near and he asks with great boldness, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He appeals to God's nature. When Abraham prays, he doesn't pray what his heart's desire desires is. He doesn't even mention Lot, his cousin, who is there. He says, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What he is doing is he is appealing to who God is. He says, you are the judge of all the earth. To say that he is the judge of all the earth means that he is implying that he is the fountain of all that is right. He is the universal right. He has the universal right to judge. He is the author of the laws of righteousness. He reveals laws of both nature and moral compass. God is the one who can judge absolutely. And when he prays, he prays according to God's character and according to God's position. Abraham is not there arrogantly saying, save Lot, for he is worthy of it. Of course, he is prompted by his cousin being there, but he is not praying to save Lot. He's saying, if there is righteous, if there is righteousness in this city, will you spare it? And God, in his great mercy, great mercy says, for 50, he will spare the whole city. That is God's graciousness and mercy. That is his abounding, steadfast love that he would spare this wicked city with oppression and brutality crying out to him. And the reality is God is sparing it every day. God is sparing, get this, God is sparing the city, this city, because of us, because of his church. Because there's people in this city who are His, as He says in Acts. But would our prayers, our intercession, come to God, a God we know? To not a God we've made up in our mind. A God we know means that we understand who He is. We've studied God. That's theology, the study of God. Which means we pray according to who He is and not according to who we are. As Jesus taught, hallowed be your name. Make your name great. Make it holy. Put it where it should be. Let your will be done. What Abraham does is just come to God and say, I am trusting you to act according to your righteousness. You are the judge of everything. And God responds in such a merciful way to say, I'll spare the whole city for only 50 righteous. The reality is those who are far from God aren't heard by God. Proverbs 15:29 The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. The wicked cannot be praying to God. They don't know God. They don't know who they are praying to, and if they pray, they are praying idolatrous prayers because they have fashioned a God for their own liking. 
We must pray who we know. And that is why it is the righteous obligation to stand between the righteous God and the wicked people. We have come to know God, therefore we come and we plead on their behalf, God, work according to your righteousness, work according to your grace, pour out your grace upon them. They don't deserve it, but we long to see such and such come to know you and experience what we have experienced. We intercede as those who, have know, as those who know God and can pray according to what we know. Spurgeon states and believes, and I would agree, that every single person that has bowed their knee to the Lord Jesus has been prayed for and interceded for at some point in their life. Whether it be your parents, whether it be a friend, whether it be us who are pleading for this neighborhood, but everyone who bows the knee to Jesus has been interceded for. That is how God fulfills His purpose and plan. Through the righteous, that He has made righteous, praying. In the midst of his prayer, as it goes on from 27 to 32, we see a great reminder that Abraham knows not only who God is, he knows who he is. Abraham said, verse 27, Behold, I have taken to speak to the Lord, I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking, will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? He said, I will not destroy it if, there are four, if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, O Lord, let the, the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but this once, suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. Abraham not only knows the character of God, he doesn't only know who God is, but he knows his own place. The reality of the Christian who comes before God is they have been humbled by the Holy Spirit. They are they are in the state of realizing that they, they had needed to be born again. And we have been invited in to a place that we don't deserve to be. We've been invited into the Holy of Holies where God dwells. We have access to God as a Father. We've taken on the position of Christ. And we can come to Him in humility in His presence. We need to remember that we are created from dust. We came from the ground and God has given us his image to bear. I grieve over the false teachers that are plaguing the church today who teach that we should command things to happen, who act violently in their prayer by beating people to drive out demons and command God to drive out sicknesses. This is a heretical, proud, proud teaching, proudful teaching. False teachers... In the time of Jesus, also used prayer as a means to promote themselves. The Pharisees would go into the temple robed in beautiful clothes and pray loudly with their hands lifted high. Or stand on street corners and recite a prayer from memory that would go for hours. 
But Jesus said, be like the tax collector who comes in and beats his chest, not even looking up to heaven and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we come to God in prayer, we come as those redeemed from sinner to son. Son being that we have an inheritance. We can call him father. So we come in a way of humility with great boldness. We come with humble boldness. We can be like Abraham who comes and and pushes more than what we should because we we are like a son to God. We're a child of God's. We have access to Him in ways people don't have access to Him. So we come in a humility, a reverence, as a son would go before a father and ask him questions as they learn and grow and request things from him. The famous quote of Tim Keller's is the only person to wake up the king in the middle of a night for a glass of water is a child, is his child. And that is the access we have to God. We have the boldness to come to Him at any time and request things that would be absurd for a king to give us. Yet He's invited us to. And He's redeemed us from unrighteousness so that we can. The last verse is a profound verse and it says, The Lord went His way. Verse 33. And when He had finished speaking to Abram, and Abram returned to His, pl- and Abram returned to his place. This helps us see how Abram views himself in God. God goes off to do his will. And that's his right. We go off and wait. We wait upon God. Does Abram know what happened to Sodom? Not at this point. Maybe he sits in his tent and waits for the smoke of sulfur to go up as he sees it and realizes that there weren't even ten righteous there. Because as God said, if there were ten He would spare the whole city. So Abram sits waiting. And we know in verse 19, 29, it says, uh, chapter 19, 29, it says, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent out Lot of the midst of the overthrow. And then he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. One righteous man apparently. Righteous by faith and faith alone. Why was he brought out? Because of Abraham's prayer. Abraham's prayer. Abraham interceded on behalf of this city and those who were blessed by Abraham will be blessed. Those who are cursed, those who curse Abraham will be cursed. And we know that Lot was one who blessed Abraham. We see So beautifully, God show great mercy to Lot and lead him out of this place of destruction. We'll see that next week and we'll look more on the mercy of God there. But as we think about prayer, as we think about the world that we live in, are we doing this in the security and strength of our own life? When we go forth to preach to the lost, to counsel a brother or sister, when we long to see sanctification take place in our life and in the church, Are we praying for it? Or are we just acting? And when I say, are we praying for it? Are we interceding for it? Are we taking the times in the closet, in the desolate place? Are we gathering with believers like in Acts 4, where they were beaten and whipped 
And they go together to pray. And it says, And they went forth and spoke the gospel boldly. You will not speak the gospel boldly until you have prayed in humble boldness. Let us remember that God is sovereign. And He has sovereignly invited His children to intercede on behalf of the wicked. To call upon His attributes, His grace and His mercy. To uphold His righteousness and justice. And to call that God would come and reveal Christ to this poor and broken nation. Would we intercede and imitate Christ in prayer? Oh, how our nation needs it. The outcry is continuing to go up to God. And it will not go up forever. Let's pray. Father, thank You that we can draw near to You as Abraham did. We can draw near to You because of Christ. He intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, as Romans 8 tells us. And Lord, it would be remiss if if I did not repent and confess, Lord, prayerlessness for myself, for us as a church, Oh Lord, would we know our weakness? It's a dangerous prayer, Lord, to ask, but would you reveal just how weak we are? The outcry that has come to you from this nation or even just this neighborhood is great. Lord, would we feel it? The reality of hell, when our eyes look out, will we see the spiritual reality rather than the physical? And Lord, in so doing, would we see just how weak we are in trying to change anything? And Lord, would the weakness not turn to despair or self-pity, but would it lead us to be active in humble boldness in prayer, drawing near to you the sovereign God who has planned and purposed that his people would pray and intercede for the wicked and the unrighteous. Just as we ourselves were interceded for, Lord, whether by Christ alone or by family, friends, or or a stranger who met us once and tried to preach the gospel to us. Would the names plague our mind that need intercession? Those that we have spoken to, those that we love. Let us delight in the desolate place in the closet, as Christ says. Let us delight in the gathering of the saints in prayer, where we may lead from in boldness to preach the gospel. Now I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.